you have your Bible, um, go ahead and turn to Ephesians chapter 1. We are continuing our series today through Paul's letter to the Ephesian Christians. And the, the series we've entitled Peace Through Grace and, and understanding how if we are to have peace in this life, if we to see the world in the way that we should to, to properly live our lives, that it's only through the grace that God has given us that we find that. And, and that's what Paul does in Ephesians. He gives us our identity. He points out where our identity is found. And, and it's because of that we have that peace. We, our identity is secure. Therefore, we have peace to live our lives knowing that in Christ we have been given everything that we need for life. So as we continue this today, um, we get to verse 15. We're going to go through 15 through 19 today. And um, looking at, at Paul's prayer now, and as we see how Paul prays, we're going to find what the essence of our prayers should be also. So if you'll follow along as I read um, Ephesians 1 verse 15, Paul begins this prayer and says, for this reason, because I've heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you a spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints, and what is the immeasurable greatness of the power towards us who believe, according to the working of his great might. If y'all will pray with me, we'll ask God to guide us through this today. God, we, we come to you and acknowledge that, that once again we require your help to discern your truth. God, and we just pray that, that now that your spirit would, would speak to us, that as we get into the scripture that is your word, that, that the truth would be revealed by your spirit to us, that we would be sensitive to that, that, that we would rely on your power instead of ours, that, that our lives would be changed because of your truth being unhindered and revealed to us. And it's in, in Jesus' name we pray, amen. And in, in 2005, there was this Showtime documentary called Reversal of Fortune. And, and basically, the, the kind of the under title of that was, what would a homeless person do if you gave them $100,000? And so the, the show chronicled, chronicled this life of this guy named Ted that um, he, usually his typical day consisted of what we would say is a normal homeless life. He would go through and, and look for cans and stuff to recycle. And, and he averaged about $35 a day. Well, what the producer of the show did is they just put a briefcase with 100000 cash in it with a little note that said, it's yours, or I don't know how they did it, basically you don't have to turn it in. This is for you. And they, they hid it in, in one of the dumpsters. And so as he was doing his normal day, and obviously they were there filming, um, he, he finds this briefcase and opens it, and there's $100,000 cash. And basically, then it chronicled, what would he do? He'd been homeless, and, and so what would he do? And so really, he went from a normal day um, early on of getting $35 was a good day that he got recycling to for the first couple of weeks, he spent $10,000 in a week because there was relatively no guidelines to what he could do with the money. They just wanted to see what he would do. 
And so, and then the show reported that in less than six months after, they, they started, they would talk to him. They had communication with him. It wasn't this blind, we're just going to film you. But they, they didn't direct him. And it showed that after six months of finding the money, he refused to tell them what his balance was. He had bought cars for himself and a girlfriend that he gained after he got the money. And, and basically it was believed by his, his sisters, he had family that knew him, that, that he, had, after six months, had less than $5,000. He had less than $5,000 by his name. And actually, by 2007, this actually ended up being on one of Oprah's shows where she was talking about the same thing. And in 2007, when that aired, he admitted that he was back on the streets, completely homeless, and he was content. That's what he wanted to be. He had lost all 100000 spent it all. And, and in less than, in about two years, he was completely back on the streets again. And see, we see that the problem wasn't that he received the money. It's that he didn't know how to manage it. Well, the money wasn't the problem. He didn't know how to manage it. He had never managed that, so he didn't know. He didn't know what to do. So he did what most of us would do, whatever he wanted. He just thought, hey, I want a truck. I'll buy one. Okay? And he did. And it was probably cool to go in and pay cash for a truck. You know, well, a lot of times we're like, I wish I could do that. I could use a new truck. Where can I find $100,000 just laying? But, but what we see is that he didn't know where to go for help. He, he didn't know. They tried to push him to financial advisors, and he said, they're just after my money. They wouldn't talk to him. And, and so we see that if we're now to properly manage our lives, we must refuse to allow that superficial and selfish heart to invade even our prayer life. And we'll see as we look at this passage that, that Paul, after lining out in, in verses 3 through 14, he basically gives us the gospel. He gives us solid doctrine that we can understand who we are in Christ. And that we can see that as, after he does that, he then moves into prayer. He starts praying for these brothers. And that's an interesting development, really. Is we see that Paul's understanding of the gospel in verses 3 through 14, how he teaches the gospel and how our identity is found in him. And we talked about in the past three weeks that all through those verses, that's just one sentence that it's constantly, it's in Christ, in him. It's God doing everything. And Paul's understanding of that gospel and what he's teaching the Ephesians then leads him to pray for them. And, and basically, we see that if we understand the gospel like Paul presents it, and just if we understand the gospel, then that leads us to worship. And then we see that, that, that Paul here reveals us that that byproduct of worship should be prayer. Our worship should lead to prayer. And, and when we come to the essence of prayer, we should see, uh, today we'll see through Paul's uh, example here that, that our prayers then, the essence of them, should include words of worship. It should include words of, of wonder and of wakefulness. And, and we'll see that by what Paul's given us here, we'll understand how the essence of our prayer should be. That way we can focus them correctly. And so as we look at these verses, starting with 15, we see that, that Paul's giving thanks for the believers, okay? But he's giving thanks, why? Because of their faith, in verse 15, for this reason, okay? Here's why I'm about to pray for you. It's for this reason, because I've heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and of your love toward all the saints. So Paul here, you can almost see that he's heard of his faith. We, we know that Paul is writing this letter while he's in prison. He's not with them. 
He's away from them, but he's heard of these brothers. He's heard of them. He spent so much time with them. You can see he's almost checking in on old friends. It's like he wants to know if he ever knows of anyone that has gone to Ephesus. He asks about them. What, what is the church like? He helped plant this church. He pastored it for two years. Uh, he's, he's been there invested in life, and you can see he's checking in, just like we do. If we have an old friend, we check in time to time. He did it by word of mouth or, or letter. We do it by a simple text because often we don't want to call anyone. We'll just text them. It's easier that way. We don't have to actually talk to them, but we can check in on them. And so and that's what he's doing. But, so he starts this, he starts the entire book of Ephesians. In verse 2, grace, or in verse 1, to the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful in Christ. He, he's re- recalling that they're faithful. They're not just random people. They have remained faithful. And it's because of this now he's going to start this prayer. Because I've heard that you've remained faithful. And your love toward all the saints these brothers and sisters who he's addressing here, these Christians that he knows and he loves have remained firm in their faith. And that's greatly encouraging to him. Is, and it's the same with us. When we see people that we've known as they've grown and they've come to be Christian, they've understand the gospel, it's encouraging when we see that they're remaining faithful, that they're not stumbling, that they're continuing to move. And he thanked them for the gospel he reveals the truth that we so desperately needed to hear, that we're sinners in need of a Savior. And, and he's thanking God for that, that they've remained faithful in that. But he's also talking about their love. You see that? that we need to look at that real quick. That your love toward all the saints. It's, it's interesting there that he doesn't say the love towards all the people in the city. Because oftentimes, right now, that, that, that the church... When the church is under attack in society, it's because we don't love those outside of the church well. And so what do we do? We focus on loving people outside of the church. But we forget about the ones inside the church. And he's saying here that, that I've heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus, but also your, your love for all the saints. He's talking about love for each other in the body. Because if we understand the gospel, the love for others is a, is a byproduct of it. It's automatic. But so often now in church, we, we spend so much time outside of the body that we've forgotten about it. That, that our affections have turned elsewhere because we feel like people are critiquing us for not loving the world so much that we forget to love ourselves as far as the body. We don't, we don't love each other inside the church. And Paul's saying, that I'm giving thanks to God. Why? Because you love each other. And, and Paul knows that if we love each other properly, then we'll love everyone properly. And, but, but also, look what he's saying. Because of, I've heard of your faith, I do not cease to give thanks. So how often do you give thanks to God for what he's given you? Do, do your prayers often focus on what he's given us physically, our, our house, maybe our family, that we're healthy? They, they focus on that. But when was the last time you thanked God for your salvation? And that's not to say that, that our prayers are wrong when we say that. But, but when was the last time that our prayers really came out of this understanding of thank you for saving me? Thank you for saving me that, that I've found faith in you. And that's what Paul's doing. He's thanking God for the salvation, for hearing that they've remained faithful. And so we see that, that Paul then as he continues this prayer 
He tells us why he's praying, and then he gets into the actual meat of his prayer. But we see that the first thing he does is his prayer is included at the essence of it with words of worship. In verse 16 and 17, look at this again real quick. I do not cease to give thanks for you. We, we just talked about it. We'll get a little more. Remembering you in my prayers that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory. Okay, here, here we see that he doesn't give thanks to you. I don't cease giving thanks because of you. Why? Because of their salvation. He's going again that what they've gained in Christ, he's thanking God for. He's thanking that he's saved them. That he didn't leave them on their own, that he came to them, that God chose them. He's thanking God for that. He doesn't cease to give thanks that. It's thankful for the salvation, not just that he knows them, but that God has saved them. That God has saved them. And, and he's doing this in a sense of worship. And we see the gospel, we understand this, because the gospel produces worship. When we look at the gospel and we understand that we have been saved, it leads to worship. And that's what Paul's saying. That I've heard of your faith, and I don't cease to give thanks remembering you my prayers i'm giving thanks because of what god has given you the gospel produces worship in ephesians 2 5 paul says when we were dead in our trespasses made that god made us alive together in christ by grace you have been saved romans 3 23 and 24 for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of god and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is Jesus Christ. Galatians three thirteen through 14. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming the curse for us. For his written curse is everyone who is hanged on the tree. So that in Christ, the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles so that we might receive a promised spirit through faith. In Romans six twenty three, For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Those, those are just some general gospel passages, but they should produce worship. Because it tells us that we are dead in sin. We are nothing but Christ, but God. There's always this excitement that comes when you hear the gospel because we were dead and there's nothing we could do. There's no action by us in that, in any of those passages. If you ever see a passage in Scripture that's talking about the gospel, there's never action on our part. It's receiving. And that should produce worship. That should excite us. And so our prayer should be filled with that. Thank you for what you've given me. Thank you for what you've given me. Yet we were sinners, but Christ died for us. That should be worship. It shouldn't be this general, okay, that's great. No, it should cause us to worship continually. It not only makes sense then that our prayers are filled with worship because now we're communicating with the one that gave us that. The gospel comes from God, so our worship goes back to him and it should be be in the essence of our prayer. If you'll remember, remember Ted from a few minutes ago, that, that he was given that money for no reason, just because. He was given this huge gift, but it really didn't change his life. The producers hoped it would. I mean, everyone thinks that if we can just give people some money, then they can get their way out. And that's what they were hoping. They didn't say that, but why else would you do it? They wanted it to be this success story. That they gave him something, all of a sudden he saved himself. But it didn't change his life. In fact, you could say it probably hurt him because it elevated him enough out of it for just a moment that he saw a taste of what there was and then he fell back down. And, and so there's even a point when, when talking to Ted 
when they, then he reveals the fact that not only did he wish that he hadn't got the money, but he actually resented the producers for giving it to him. Not only did he get this gift, he, he, was, he resented the people that gave it to him. And how odd is that? It's like, really? I mean, you want to ask, you just want to shake him. You're like, are you serious? I would take $100,000. I'm not, I'd love those people forever. Like, just give it to me. Let me try, right? Does someone give it to me and we'll just see because I would love them forever. But here, Ted, he, no, he, only, he resents them. I wish you'd have never given that to me. And that's what we do often in our prayer lives is we've been given this uncomprehendable gift. We don't need to be given $100,000 or whatever type of thing that would be. What we've been given is greater than that. But do our prayers reflect that? No, so often our prayers don't reflect a worship because we've been given this gift. They don't reflect this thankful heart because of who we've been given this gift by. Instead, we continue to ask for more. We think we haven't been given enough, and so we ask for more. Instead of worshiping through our prayers, we become selfish and superficial. We'd, and often that, that leads to almost at a time when we live in this culture that we live in, that, that we almost get to the point where we resent God for giving that to us because our old life was better. So we didn't have to worry about doing things right. Those people that don't go to church or aren't part of the, they have a free life. They just do whatever they want to. And so we start resenting God because our, our prayers aren't focused then on the worship because we've been given that gift. We start thinking about where we are now instead of where we're going to be. And that's what, and that's where Paul's going with his prayers. He's giving thanks because of salvation just like we should. He remembers in them his prayers. And then look what he does. He, he gives thanks to God. And then, and then what's he going to do? He's going to ask God for something. It's not saying, I'm not saying that our prayer should be an essence of worship and then we don't ask God for anything. That's not what we're saying. But we're saying we should attain a depth to our prayer. And so, so to do that, we have to talk about who we're praying to. And, and so let's look at Paul right here. What does he say? But notice who he's talking to. That the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory. Okay, so here's who he's talking to. He's talking to God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father, member of the Trinity, the Father of glory. But look how he described him there, the Father of glory. So when Paul's saying this, he understands the gospel. He sees that God has saved us. He's giving thanks for that. He's thanking God for the salvation of these people, just like we should give thanks to God for our salvation. When we talk to him, when we, we go to him in prayer, we should be worshipful in that thanks. But then notice how he describes him, the father of glory. And what Paul's saying there is that he's the father of everything glorious. If there's any good in the world, it comes from him. That's what Paul's saying. Here, the father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the father of glory. If there's anything glorious, this is who I'm talking to because it comes from him. Not only has he given us salvation, but literally everything that is good comes from him. All things that are great and glorious are because of him. And so even when Paul's about to ask for something, he's getting ready to petition God, he elevates him to a place of worship. By saying that he's the, the father of everything glorious, that's, a, that's putting him where he belongs. So even as he's about to ask for God to do something for these Ephesian Christians, he's about to ask something, he says, no, but you're the father 
of glory. Everything glorious comes. So the essence of Paul's prayer is worship. God is the author of everything good. So is the essence of your prayer life worship? Are they being directed to the one that gave us everything, even though we deserve nothing? Because if they, if they are, then that's the place that, that's worship. That's understanding the gospel that we were dead in our trespasses and sin, but we were made alive in, alive in Christ Jesus. That's worship. And our, and our prayers should be focused that way. And now we see God, and now we see Paul praying for this season. What is he going to ask? We see he starts asking for things now. And he asks God to give them, at the, at the end of verse 17, that the Father of glory may give you a spirit of wisdom and revelation and the knowledge of him. So now we see that, that the essence of his prayer shifts from worship. Not that it, that stops, but now he focuses on another aspect. And that's where we get into the words of wonder. And so Paul's asking the Father to give them what? The spirit of wisdom and revelation. And if we, we understand Paul, if we look at Ephesians, we know that when Paul is using the word spirit here, he's talking Holy Spirit. This isn't just a random wisdom. This is wisdom. If you look in your Bible, or I guess if you're scrolling electronically, it, it probably has spirit capitalized there. And the translators do that for us so that we understand. He's not talking just general spirit. He's talking the spirit. And, and, but we need to understand that this, he's not saying that, that God would give the spirit of wisdom like they haven't received it, but that they would see the depths of the Spirit in a different manner. This isn't a second pouring out of the Spirit he's talking about. Some people would use this to talk about that, that no, you then receive another pouring out of the Spirit. No, that's not what he's talking about. He's talking that, that the depth of this knowledge that the Spirit gives us, the wisdom that we have would increase. That's not a new pouring on of the Spirit. It's just an increasing awareness of what we've already been given. And, and what I mean by words of wonder here, when you think words of wonder, what it, it's that the, through the Spirit's power and, and guidance, that we should always have this desire and curiosity to know Jesus more. So if you look at this, what he says, it says, give you a spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of him. So this isn't knowledge, just general wisdom. This is wisdom and knowledge of who? Of Christ. And that's why we say words of wonder, is we should have this wonder defined as a desire of curiosity. We should have this desire to know Jesus more. In our prayers, we should, we should have this, these words should always be about this curiosity, this wonder of who he is. That's what Paul's talking about. He's not acting for, asking for general knowledge, but knowledge of him. Christ, and we should seek to know him more. And so are you? Do you really seek to know Christ more? Or is just the general knowledge of the gospel that, yes, he died on the cross. No one argues that. He raised again. He's going to come back. That's great. Do you stay at the surface level, superficial, or do you have this curiosity to know him more? Who is Christ? What is this person who's also God? What is it? You have this curiosity to dive deeper into that. And if you do, this should be reflecting in your prayers. Do you desire to know Jesus deeper, pure, in a way you never thought possible? Do you always do that? And commenting on this passage, 
John Calvin, um, in his commentary on it, said that it was necessary that the Ephesians should understand that they have entered upon the proper course. So Paul's saying, yes, you've been faithful. Yes, you've been faithful. I've heard of this. That's great. I'm giving thanks for that. But now he prays that God would give them the spirit of wisdom and revelation. And, and so Calvin continues. He says, they've, un- they've entered on a proper, proper course. They're walking where they should be. They're standing firm. But it was equally necessary that they should not turn aside to any new scheme of doctrine or become indifferent about proceeding further. For nothing is more dangerous than to be satisfied with the measure of spiritual benefits which has been already obtained. Whatever then may be the height of our attainments, let them always be accompanied by the desire of something higher. That's what Paul's getting at, is that we shouldn't settle for what we know of Christ. We should have a curiosity to dive more into him. And he's doing this through prayer. He's praying that the Spirit would relieve, would reveal that to him. So how do you know Christ more? You spend time with him. Well, how do you spend time with him? Through prayer and through the word. So in, in here, Watershed, as a church, we consider the Bible the highest authority. When we look at scripture, it's the highest authority that, that we have. And as such, we go to it to learn about Jesus. And, but last week we, we mentioned, when we were talking about the spirit and, and understanding, we talked about the fact that often when we open our Bible, that if you're like I am, a lot of times you read it and you're like, I have no idea what that means. I have no clue. You, you look at it and you read something, not even if you read something hard. I'm not even talking like Old Testament stuff where it's like, wait a second, what did that actually mean? I'm just, just New Testament, just calm, even this, Ephes- what does it mean? You look at it and it's like the pages all of a sudden just like fade. And you're like, I don't even know what that means. That's where the Spirit comes in. That's why Paul's praying that not only would we gain wisdom and revelation, but it would be the Spirit doing it for us. That we should wander into who Christ is. That our curiosity and desire should be to know him more. Not this superficial cultural Christianity that so many people are caught up into, but an in-depth understanding of who he is. Romans eight twenty nine, Paul says it this way. He says, for those whom he foreknew, he foreknew, being God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to what? The image of his son. In order that they might be the firstborn among many brothers. Do you see that? That he predestined us to be conformed, what? To the image of his son. When I I used to teach at the high school, now I'm at the elementary. You don't see it as much because they're always together. But but even in your life, I remember I I gained, I had my friends kind of switched when I was growing up. I I was a country boy, which... It's funny to some of y'all that know me now because I'm like, I was raised pigs and all sorts of stuff. I was that guy. And then uh, some of my friends changed. So what happened? I changed. All of a sudden, I didn't wear my boots as much anymore. And I started dressing like them. And that's what we do. The more time we spend with people, the more we start to look alike. It's the same thing with Christ. If we have that desire and curiosity to know him, what happens? We start to be conformed to his image. And that's what God wants. He wants us to be conformed to the image of his son. Why? So that we, that he might be the firstborn among brothers, that Christ is the first brother, the firstborn, but then there are others. And it's because of Christ that we are able to do that. 
So is your faith accompanied by the desire of something higher? Do you really seek to know Christ more? Do you get in the word? Do you spend time with him? So if you want to be more like Christ, if you want your life to reflect more like Christ, then are you spending time with him? And not just this general going through a Bible study that someone else wrote. Do you just spend time in scripture? Asking God to understand that. Having this wonder through your prayer, this curiosity that the spirit would give you more wisdom and knowledge of him. So the essence of our prayer should be that. We should have this curiosity to know Jesus. And that's what we should ask for. We should ask for that because we have this curiosity. The essence of our prayer should consist of words of wonder and wonder about the person of who Jesus really is. Not this superficial head knowledge, not this intellectual assent to who he is, but a deepening understanding of really who he is in our life. Knowing the person of Christ more so that then we are conformed to his life, so that we are transformed by the renewing of our minds. And so now we see Paul, he, he he's talks about this wonder, who we are. Do you have this desire to have the Spirit give you knowledge of him, of Christ? And then, and then he moves on in his, in his petition to God. He asks that he would give us the Spirit, but then he also continues in verse 18. It says, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you. What are the riches of his glory inheritance in the saints? And so here's, now we see that the essence of his prayer not only contains worship and, and wonder and curiosity and, and who Christ is, but it's also wakefulness. Look at that verse again. Having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you. He's asking that their hearts be open, but be open to what? Okay, if our hearts are going to be enlightened, if the eyes of our hearts are enlightened, are opened up, what are they opened up to? What does he pray that God would reveal to us? The knowledge of the hope that he's called us to. Okay, so why do we have this hope? And in the church, we often talk about this hope that is to come, but what, why do we have it? And that's what Paul's getting at here. That's what we understand here. If the eyes of our hearts are enlightened, we see that the hope Paul is talking about is only by the Father's election, the Son's sacrifice, and is secured by the Spirit. What I mean by that is that this hope that he's talking about, this hope that we've been called to, is based on our identity in Christ. And that's what we need to understand. We've been given this inheritance because of Christ. This inheritance that's beyond anything we can imagine, we've been given it. Why? Because we're in Christ. It had nothing to do with us. So our prayers now should consist of this wakefulness of who we are. Our prayers should be flooded with words that are alert and vigilant to that fact. We must be constantly finding ourselves in him. Even in our prayer, knowing that we're secure in our identity because we're secure in Christ. We've been adopted into a family. Our names have been changed. We've been given a new identity and we need to be wakeful to this fact even in our prayers. Understanding that our hearts be reminded of this constantly because so often we forget that. Our hearts must be alert to the constant barrage of this world and a society that preaches you are who you are by what you do. 
Because the gospel is the exact opposite of that. The gospel says you are who you are because what he did. And our prayers should consist of this wakefulness, this alertness to that fact. That's what Paul's praying here. Having the eyes of your hearts enlightened. And that's what our prayer should be, that our hearts would be enlightened. What to the hope? Why do we have hope? Because we are who we are in Christ. Our identity is secure in him. There isn't a a pull yourself up by the bootstraps in Christianity. If there is and you hear that, then it's false. We are who we are because of Christ. That's what Paul said in verses 3 through 14. Everything was in Christ, in him, by God's will, in the beloved, by the Spirit. There's nothing that we did in those whole first verses that we talked about except sin. We need to be wakeful to that fact. We've been given an inheritance because of who we are in Christ, not because of who we are in this world. There's a story that I read. Lindsay had been given this little book, like a little devotional book, and it had a story in there talking about a plantation owner. I don't know if it's a real story or not. We'll say it was because it makes it better. We'll just pretend that, um, I don't know, maybe it was. I don't know. Sorry. Side. But... Um, he had died, and in his inheritance, he'd actually had this slave that worked for him for almost his entire life. They'd actually grown up together. So really, they, they, they'd befriended each other because if you're around each other enough, you get to know each other, you get to like each other usually, or you accept flaws from people. And he had been given this amount of money, about $50,000. So if you go with inflation or whatever, we'll say half a million dollars of our. I mean, given this inheritance, given to the slave, and was deposited in a bank for him. Okay? And, and the slave never did anything with it. Never went to the bank to get the money. Unlike Ted, in the, in the first story, who spent it all, the slave didn't touch it. And so the bank was kind of curious. You would think, why aren't why this person, a slave, had nothing? All of a sudden, be given everything. Why, why aren't he using it? What's the deal? So the bank manager calls him. He's like, hey. Well, I guess he wasn't like, hey, but you know what I mean. He said, the money's ready for you. You can deposit it. You can, you can access it at any time. And the slave responds, well, do you think I can have 25 cents to buy some cornmeal? Because he didn't realize what he'd been given. He'd been given this huge inheritance, but he had no clue what he had been given. He didn't understand it. He didn't understand that what he had, had been given. Now, had the plantation owner still been alive and given it to him, then he would have known because he could have explained it. And see, and that's where we're different than that slave. Is while often we don't understand what we've been given, we forget the glories of the gospel. That's why we have this time of confession every week because we want to understand that we are still sinners. We turn from that. We forget the inheritance that is to come. We're not like the slave in the fact that the person that gave it to us is dead. We've been told what we have. Not only were we told that, that we have the Spirit that can enlighten our hearts to this fact that in our identity secure in Christ, we've been given everything that we need. Our identity is in Christ, and if we continue to realize this, the essence of our prayers should find these words of wakefulness. We should be vigilant to remember that. We should constantly ask God to enlighten our hearts so that we know the hope that we have because it's a glorious and great thing. And when we understand that, that's when we can say confidently alongside with Paul, 
in Romans 8.18, we talked about it last week, where he says, for I consider the sufferings of this present time are worth nothing. They're not worth comparing to the glory that is to be revealed. And that's what we should be wakeful to. Our identity is so secure in Christ that there's nothing in this world that's even comparable. Not even just the sufferings. The good things of this world are nothing. We should be wakeful to that. Our identity is insecure, is secure because we have nothing but hope. We have nothing but hope and we should be wakeful to the reason and that's because our identity is in Christ. Next week, we'll, we'll continue going in. Verse 19, he says, and what is the immeasurable greatness of, the, of his power towards us who believe and to the working of his great might? Next week, we'll get more into that because we get to get more in depth into his power and how that works out. So I hope you'll come back next week and we can finish that topic of of his power being in the essence of our prayer. But did you you come in today not really knowing how to pray? Have you ever wondered, how do I pray? What, What should it look like? But not only what should it look like, what should it consist of? What should it consist of? Maybe you've been faithful. Maybe you've understood and been faithful in your prayer life, but all of a sudden your, your prayers have grown stagnant or empty. They're, they're all of a sudden always superficial. There's no depth to it. Have you ever wondered how? How to, how to change that? Well, today, Paul taught us how to pray. He, he showed us how to pray. He modeled it. So let's follow his example and make sure the essence of our prayers, like his, Contain those words of worship and wonder in Christ and our identity and wakefulness to that fact. Let's pray.